Today on the Vibe Cultivated Network, we are interviewing Mr. T.O. Ceasefire Hardiman. So, Mr. Hardiman, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and uh, how you got the name Mr. Ceasefire and uh, just tell us, give the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do. Well, first and foremost, you know, I was born in the heart of the ghetto, like a lot of people. I, I just want to say that. I grew up in the Henry Hornet Projects on the west side of Chicago and the Avalon Park community on the south side of Chicago. Things were kind of rough growing up, just like a lot of people go through changes growing up, so I'm not unique. A lot of people struggle. Just born and raised, it's kind of tough. Uh, born in poverty and had to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Were you in a single-parent household? Uh, my grandparents raised me. And when okay. my grandparents passed away, then I ended up shipped to the west side of Chicago and around my mother and, uh, you know, in the projects. But, you know, it was cool. I, you know, I wouldn't uh, change nothing if I could. Basically, I, you know, I used to love the projects. I love the south side, I love the west side, all of Chicago, really. So it wasn't, it, you know, it might have been, it might have appeared kind of difficult because you're growing up in poverty. But at the same time, you don't, you don't see it when you're young, uh, like you may see it as you look back on your life. But, you know, I grew up in a pretty rough community around a lot of, you know, I grew up around pimps, prostitutes, killers, uh, I even grew up around business people as well, politicians, so it wasn't just all negative uh, influences in the in the neighborhood, but uh, it, it was a lot going on, just put it like that. So how do you think your experience growing up in poverty shaped you, and like who, which of those figures did you look up to, the pimps and the gangsters or the politicians and the businessmen? Well, it was a mix for me, you know, that's funny you asked that question, it was a mix for me. I looked up to, well, you had no other choice but to look up to the cool guys in the community and some of the stand-up guys because... They were right outside your window, okay? Those were the guys that was riding the big Cadillacs and doing whatever they was doing. I, when I was a, a kid, I used to think, man, you was a millionaire if you had a Cadillac. How you know? So, Mr. Hardman, can you tell us, how did you get the name Mr. Ceasefire? Well, you know, pretty much the name Mr. Ceasefire, I got that name because all the work I put in, in here in the field of violence prevention, saving lives, I'm one of the only brothers that you might talk to in Chicago. I'm not saying I'm the only one, but one of the only brothers, like the godfather of the violence prevention movement here in Chicago and throughout the nation. I'm the guy that created the violence interrupters. All praises due to God. But Mr. Ceasefire, my name became synonymous with Ceasefire because I'm the former director of Ceasefire Illinois. And we put a lot of work in. I'm talking about we work with over 1,200 high-risk individuals. We spent like 22,000 man hours with them guys and mediated around about a good 800 conflicts. And when I'm talking about mediating conflicts, uh, the work is not for the faint and hard. Do not try it at home because if you re really, really want to save a life, it's going to take some form of uh, uh, confrontation to a degree. Not necessarily physical all the time, but it gets kind of rough. And people tell lies all the time saying they stop and kill us. But if you have never been involved in a confrontation while you're trying to stop a killing, I, I think people are lying about it because can, I've, I, I've had some close calls. Can, can you tell us a little bit about like, what is the violence interrupters? You said you started that. Well, yeah. What is that? Well, the violence interrupters, they're, they're more like a specialty uh, trained unit of individuals that have relationships with a lot of these young shooters uh, throughout the city of Chicago and throughout our nation and internationally as well. Credible messages. I call the violence interrupters credible messages. Uh, individuals that have access to the guys that in order to stop a killing. And once they get in, they have influence to talk a guy down, that's most important because when the guys uh, from one to 10 on the anger scale, 10 being the highest level, when a guy is really super angry and a guy is psychotic, you need somebody that understands, that, that has walked in his shoes before, that can understand the mindset of that individual and get that individual to hold up for a minute because the reality, therefore nobody goes to the penitentiary, nobody goes to jail when you stop it on the front end. But you know, it might sound corny because a lot of a lot of real OGs or Gs might say, man, I'm not trying to hear nobody talking to me, but the best thing you can do is listen to reason and cooler heads prevail. A lot of people are angry right now, right now, sitting in the penitentiary doing, uh, you know, 20 years to life, sitting in a cell 23 hours a day because they refuse to listen. So the violence and the relatives, we have a 40 hour training. We make sure our, the individuals are well versed when it comes down to working with brothers and sisters on the streets here in Chicago and throughout the world. I, now, Mr. Hardman, I've known you for a few few years now. And I remember when I first met you, you were telling me of a story of an instance in which you had a mediation and you were trying to talk, you know, some sort of uh, violence from breaking out. I don't know if it was about to be a gang war or if it was going to be like some sort of rioting or something going on. Can you tell us a little bit about that instance and like walk us through what was going on in the neighborhood, how you got involved and how you were successful from potentially stopping a bloodbath? Well, first and foremost, you know, I was born and raised in the heart of the ghetto. Henry Hornet Projects, Madison and Levitt, 
793 Cottage Grove, the Avalon Park community. So I have relationships with brothers and sisters all over Chicago. So that's what made me more of a genuine person because a lot of people know me. They've known me since I was probably seven, eight years old. I've been a part of Chicago, like a Chicago native son. So that's number one. That's, that gives me the credibility that I need to go into these real tight type of scenarios or tight places and talk to individuals uh, and they have respect for me. That's number one. But number two, I can just sh share a story with you. Uh, this is a more recent story because the story you're talking about that, that happened some years ago. I have a recent story that just took place about 30, 40 days ago. I had a guy that uh, he uh, he was in the process of robbing another individual, but his gun jammed. So the guy he tried to rob had a gun himself. <laughs> so what he did, he shot the guy in his buttocks, but the gun actually grazed his buttocks and he ran up on him and he kicked him down to the ground. And he looked him in his face and he pulled the guy's mask up. He said, man, you know what? If I didn't know your family, your uncle, I would kill you. And that's what the guy told him. That's the guy that the individual tried to rob. The guy told me he would kill him if he didn't have respect for his uncle. So he let him go for whatever reason. He let him go because the guy's gun jammed. So the guy get up and run back to the car that, that was waiting on him. And he'd ride over to his uncle's house and tell, tell his uncle the guy tried to kill him. Lied on the man, just straight up lied on him. So now the guy's uncle is all, you know, like hyped up. They're about to go out and kill this guy that shot. Really, the bullet grazes behind. Just let me be clear. It grazes buttocks, right? Because the guy could have actually had taken his life. So he went and lied to his uncle that the guy shot him for nothing. And so, you know, I, I received a call from the guy that shot him in, uh, you know, like shot him in his buttocks or whatever. He said, look, man, I need your services right now because I know it's going to be some problems because I had to shot, shoot this boy in his butt because he tried to rob me. And, and that's exactly what happened. So, um, you know, once I talked to that guy, he gave me the name of the other individuals. I knew some guys that uh, they had a good relationship with the guy's uncle. So I had them to call him and put him on pause. And what I mean by pause, tell him to hold up for about 24 hours or 48 hours. Let's try to work this out. The uncle was really mad. He's like, man, I'm not waiting on nothing. The boy tried to kill my nephew. This is one of my favorite nephews, right? And that's the way he was talking anyway, man. I got to get him. So uh, I had my guys, that, you know, put him on hold for a minute. I talked to the other guy to make a long story short. I brought both parties to the table. And, and, and the nephew, he was still defiant. Man, you know you shot me for nothing. You tried to kill me, man. And the man said, you tried to rob me and your gun jam. And the young guy's like, no, that ain't what happened. It, you know, the way I'm talking now is just the way it took place. It uh, became very heated. So what I did is I don't allow nobody to bring guns in the mediation. I never allow that. That's rule number one. Do not allow people to bring, bring guns to the mediation. I cannot speak about what people do outside the mediation. But in this situation, I had to take control. I, I actually invited a couple of my friends to come with me. And then so to make another long story short, the guy was defiant. We had to hold up. I said, let's take five minutes, five minute break because uh, people really, really were ready to fight during this mediation. Where, where did the mediation take place? On the south side of Chicago. So it was in a neutral territory? Now I brought him to one okay. of my offices on the south side of Chicago. Okay. And I mean, it became heated. It was like thick, man. It was real thick. But I live for these kind of sessions. And I say that in a serious way because I'm sincere about saving lives. So what happened now is that uh, after the five minute break we, we had taken, uh, the guy that the nephew forgot that he had one of his friends drive him over there. He was like the getaway driver. And uh, we had that guy in the back room as, as a, actually a witness to the fact that the man did try to rob this individual. So I asked the uncle to call the man out the back room. And uh, the nephew was looking at him like, man, you better not say nothing. <laughs> you better not say nothing. So we're talking about tribals. Uh, now, uh, it went from a potential robbery to a tribal conflict. And when I use the word tribe, I don't use the word gang. It went from a robbery to a, a, a tribal conflict. Because both parties, parties were part of different tribes. So uh, the guy came from the back and said, look, man, you know you tried to rob that guy. Why are you lying to your uncle? So, you know, it became people got pissed off again. This is his getaway driver said that. Yes, get a, getaway driver told on him. Basically, I mean, we're not the police. So he told him it was in, in a tribal conversation. And so the nephew was still mad at him, want to try to fight the guy. So we called one of the tribal chieftains over there. We called one of the tribal chieftains. He came. He said, what's happening, man? He assessed the situation, listened to both sides. He took the nephew in the back room and he had a conversation with him. And when the nephew came out the back room, a thousand apologies, man. He said, that was my fault. I lied to everybody. I tried to shoot that. You know, I tried to rob him. That was on me. So we mediated the conflict. And, and, and as a matter of fact, we probably saved about two or three or four lives in the process because nobody wanted to like stand down. Nobody wanted to stand down until the tribal chief came in there and told that guy, man, you better tell the truth. He said, if, if the guy tried to kill you, we with you 100%. But if you're lying and we find out, you're going to have a problem. 
So we allowed the tribe to, to really resolve the conflict. So that was just an example of some real serious work that takes place in Chicago. And uh, we've mediated several conflicts uh, similar to, the, to those type of conflicts. Okay, okay. Uh, other conflicts that may occur on a larger scale where it may involve groups, where you yeah. know things are getting heated, you know, and how do you find out about these instances? Is it just like, you know, talk on the street that something's, something big is about to go down? Right. And you just kind of find out or it's just like everyone's on the front lines and you say, whoa, like these two games are getting ready to square, square it up. Right. You know, let's just let's get out there yeah. and get in the middle of this. Has you ever, have you ever had any like real time yeah. instances in which you prevented? Well, the way I found out about, you know, emerging conflicts is that we hire the right staff. See, uh, our staff, they're, you know, uh, street credi credible individuals that are part of those different tribes out there. So something you know, we intercept whispers on the streets. It's just the, the word of the grapevine. You know, I receive phone calls. I receive a call. This is not even a tribal conflict, but I'll say this, then I'll get back to the tribal, uh, you know, conflicts. I received a call from a guy who told me his next door neighbor man was uh, acting like a peeping Tom watching his woman through the window as he's taking a shower, his wife. And um, when he confronted his neighbor on it, uh, the neighbor told me he was going to kill him if he didn't get out of his face. And he pulled a gun out on him and told me to shoot and kill him. So the guy called me, and this happened on the south side of Chicago as well, uh, you know, around the 7200 block of South Risland. And, uh, you know, me being Captain Crusader, Mr. Ceasefire, do not try this at home, people. I went over there and knocked on the man's door. Now, I found out he was living with his grandmother. The guy was on parole. And uh, I knocked on the door. He answered. You know, I said, hey, man, I need to talk to you. He had an Islamic name. One thing I don't do, I don't give up names. I don't give up the tribe's names because I have an unwritten rule with my brothers and sisters uh, you know, on the streets and we don't give up that that type of information, but I can back up these stories and have the people tell the stories at different times or another. So uh, so the guy came to the door. I said, I need to talk to you. He said, who? I didn't know the guy. <laughs> I didn't have an Islamic name. I'm not Muslim, but I know a lot of brothers that are Islamic from the different tribes. And I said, As-salamu <laughs> You know, I use that as an entry point. I said, I need to talk to you, man, about your name. He said, I don't want to talk about that. And his grandmother, she looked at me in the doorway. She said, that's that Mr. Ceasefire guy. <laughs> He's always on the news. Let him in. Let's see what he's talking about. So the grandmother sat me down and I told the brother, I'll tell you the truth. I said, look, man, I want to talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. I don't want to talk to you around your grandmother. He said, no, it's okay. Just talk to her. I said, look, man, okay, I'm asking you. I don't want to talk around your grandmother, bro. He said, no problem. She good. I said, well, I'll tell you what, man. You just threatened to kill your next door neighbor and you showed him a gun because he confronted you about looking at his woman like a peeping Tom while she's taking a shower. He has an eight-year-old daughter over there, man. You got that man terrified. And then I found out through the grandmother that the man was on uh, parole to her house, uh, you know, after he had committed the murder like 20 years ago. And he shouldn't have had a gun anyway. So when the grandmother heard what we were talking about, she got really, uh, you know, pissed off. And she told her, look here, man, I'm going to tell you something. You my grandson, but I'm going to put your ass out of this house. If you don't tell this man the truth and do something about what you threaten that man next door. She said, I've been knowing that man on this block a long time before you moved in the house with me. And you, this is a bunch of BS, right? So uh, I talked to the brother. I tried to talk to him by himself. He didn't want to listen. So, you know, he said, you know what? You know, you know, you tell the truth. And his grandmother told him, she said, look here, I plan to call your parole agent and send your ass back to the penitentiary if you don't give me that damn gun. And, and keep in mind, everybody, I don't ask for guns. I don't do that. Every now and then somebody turn a gun in we turn it in anonymously to the police. But she said, give me that damn gun or you're going to get your ass out of my house. And she said, go over there to T.O. Hardeman, take your ass. She told me, like, take your ass over there and knock on the man's door and tell him to come over here. And I did just that. And the guy came over there and the guy, man, apologized to him <clears throat> from the bottom of his heart. The guy that uh, threatened to take his life apologized to him. Uh, you know, like I, he even started crying, man. He started crying actual tears. That's why I know it was real. And uh, the man thanked me for mediating the conflict, but the grandmother mediated the conflict, keep in mind. But I knocked on the door, and that's why I'm telling people, you have to have like a lot of fortitude, a lot of heart and passion for this work if you're going to just go up and knock on a stranger's door. Right, this work isn't really for the faint at heart. That's why I said that. You have that. to have some courage, <laughs> you have to have some know-how, some street knowledge. Yeah, then I put the you brother know. on the phone that, was, uh, that threatened to take his life with some Islamic brothers that I had a good relationship with who were part of a tribe, the same tribe he came from, and they cussed his ass. <laughs> makes sense, makes sense, makes so sense. So we, we meet it. Now, as far as tribal conflicts, a big, big gang conflicts, now, uh, you have to understand, a lot of these guys that run the, the tribes out here, they don't want you in their business. So you have to be very careful. I'm one of the only guys in town that can probably have access to them like that. 
So a lot of people may tell you all kinds of stories and talk around the issue. It's always better to meet with the tribal leaders one by one first and then get an idea of what's really going on. Because you have to understand that when guys commit to gun violence or commit to a war of, of sorts, um, they're, they're fully engaged in it. So they don't want to hear nothing about peace. So you, it's important to have all your talking points together and weigh out what's right and wrong, because what might be wrong to you may be right to them. So, yeah, there's a whole lot of, that goes into mediating with the different tribes. So uh, it's all about relationships, though. If you have a relationship with the tribal chieftain, you can get through to that person. And that's just the way it goes. One of the former presidents of Tanzania, uh, Julius Nair, he was able to organize 100 warring tribes in Tanzania before his death. So the same thing takes place in Chicago. So you cannot take the streets for granted and you cannot take the tribal chieftains uh, for granted because they have a relationship with all those psychotic guys out there and they can make things good or bad. So when it comes down to, see, you have to, this, I just want to say this too, because I don't want to keep saying the same words here. Let me, let me inject this. You have a cliques in Chicago now. You have like, you don't have a lot of the big nations that used to exist. It's not like, put it like this. You don't have nation warfare. You have cliques. Back when there was nation warfare, back in the late 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, that was a different look there. Everybody's trying to control the lucrative drug trade, but now guys are killing each other. You have the, the robbery cliques. These guys are getting together robbing people. The carjacking cliques. You have the rap cliques. So it's different now because these young guys are not fighting just to build a nation. So when you talk to the cliques out there and you got young guys in the rap game that have a lot of money, they're not, the worst thing, the hardest thing to do is to talk to a young guy that, that's paid in full because he doesn't really want to hear it. He's got big money. He has soldiers. People do whatever he asks them to do. So that's a hard one there. And when people kill other people's loved ones, that makes the stakes even harder. That's the reason why I try to stop it on the front end. Uh, because I never ever went out there and uh, tried to tell a guy to get off security. I tell guys all the time, stay on security. I'm not asking for your guns. I'm asking you to think before you act and look at the part your people played in it. One of, another statement that I don't agree with in the world. A lot of guys tell their buddies, I'm with you whether you're right or wrong. Which means if a guy go in the house and kill a woman and kids, one of his buddies will say, I'm with you whether you're right or wrong. That's dead wrong. They need to get them guys. They need to turn them guys over somewhere because... You shouldn't do that, man. Certain rules to the game out there, but people are breaking all the rules right now. So would you say that, so obviously it seems as if things are less organized than they were back in the heyday of the, 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 the really big, I guess, the beginning histories of, of uh, the tribal tribalism in Chicago. And also, would you say, are they, are, were they fighting for? What they were fighting for then, you said they were looking for more so control over, you know, the drug uh, mm -hmm. economy. You know, what are they fighting for now versus then? Was there more loyalty? Was there more of a code of ethics that went along with that back then versus now? Can you give us a little bit of an explanation of how it's different from now to, to from then to now? Well, the, the main difference from back in the late 70s, 80s and 90s, you had... Uh, nations, you know, you had nations that had rules and regulations and policies, but the drug game actually, I believe, created a, 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 a issue for a lot of the young guys that were involved in the nations because a lot of people were able to make money hand over fist. I, I remember back in the day, some of them guys were making like, they had duffel bags full of money, million dollars they were making back in the drug trade, especially in the middle eight, in the mid eighties, in the, in the mid nineties or whatever. So the money was real big. So it turned into a situation where uh, people lost respect for a lot of the leadership based on the fact that they can get money for themselves and hire killers to hang out with them. So now they want to try to get a position. And, uh, and, and that happens. That happened a lot during those years. But the thing is, once you're locked up in prison, now you have to come up under the administration and the leadership, the, the, the serious leadership in the prisons. So you can do what you want to do on the streets. But when you go get locked up, now you have to listen to the whatever leaders in charge in the prisons because you have the convict code, you have the prison code, then you have the street code. That's why they say whatever happens on the streets, you leave it out there. You don't take that stuff in the prison. They have a lot of laws. If you disrespect the laws in the prison, you no matter who you might think you are, you're gonna you might end up getting smashed. So what what do you ultimately think was the cause of the destruction of the structure? Mm -hmm. That was in place. I feel as if things were much more organized then than they are now. Like you said, it used to be right. nations versus just cliques now. Much more smaller groups just doing random stuff versus an entity working in unity to accomplish a goal. 
Yeah, what caused the breakdown is the crack cocaine era, and you know, the heroin era. Guys were, you know, making money. Some guys were getting high off the product, and a lot of people were losing respect. And uh, some of the guys would figure, look, I can be a killer. I'm a killer myself, so I don't have to listen to nobody. And then you get yourself a crew. But that's just the mindset of you. You got a lot of men with that alpha, alpha dog men mentality, hyper masculinity. You're gonna have chaos. You're going to have rebellion. You're going to have situations where the young want to take out the old. That's just the laws of nature. That's the only thing that happened. And, uh, you know, it didn't help at all when, you know, you locked up a lot of leaders and sent them way away to like Florence, Colorado, sent them to these isolated areas where no one can really kind of uh, establish order and control within a nation. So it became chaotic. And a lot of guys know this. And then in, in the 19, around 1995, they shut down all the penitentiaries in Illinois. What I mean by shut down, there was a time where there was a lot of you know, you can hang out and, you know, you, you, have, you can, uh, you know, you're not in your cell like, you know, uh, you know, like for hours upon hours. Now it's like you're in a cell 23 hours a day, 18 hours a day in some cases. So nobody can really, and then if something goes on in the prison, now you're locked up for the next year, 23 hours a day. So there was a time you had a lot of freedom. Guys could uh, control what was going on in the prisons. And uh, basically now it's lockdown. So there's no fun being locked up. All that lifting weights and you're out down there with your homies. Things are going pretty good. That's not happening. You got a lot of guys in themselves crying crocodile tears. Now, wishing they were at home with their woman, their woman, their wife or their kids. But they're down there trying to act tough and trying to play the role because they have no other choice. And you can only look at the ceiling for 23 hours a day, man. You end up going crazy. It's inhumane what takes place. See, nobody wants to talk about the uh, inhumane conditions in the penitentiary, a lot of people want to glorify it, but it's like you, you're like you going to like a a, a, ca a six by nine casket. Or, I mean, it's a six by nine cell, but you're going into like a little casket. It's like a coffin. You in a jail cell, it's like a coffin, man. For the next 20, 30 years, it's not worth. Oh, so they no longer have a schedule, which they go to do like their little job in the in the penitentiary. Well, you have they uh, go minimum security. Yard time. There's no more of that. It's just right. Well, you have uh, minimum security where you know like low level offenders. They they get a lot of time out. You have medium security where they're in the cell 18 hours. So they do have a schedule. Some people have a work detail. Yes, indeed. And medium security. But in maximum security, you and your cell 23 hours a day. I don't care how tough you are. That would really weigh on. I'd be the first to tell you if I was in jail for 23 hours a day, maximum security, I might tell them, give me lethal injection. I could probably do a year in them type of conditions. And I know three, four, five years because there's no human socialization, man. It becomes very, very hard on your mind. Any brother that survives that, I, give, I take my hat off to you because... I, I, you know, I think I would ask him, man, give me some something, man, to help subdue, you know, when I'm dealing with right, this isolation. Right, right, Okay, so subdue so these feelings or whatever. But, uh, yeah, that's what's going on. So, Mr. Hardiman, you know, I follow you on LinkedIn. You know, and I noticed that some from time to time you make uh, posts about different things that uh, interest you. I noticed you're very critical of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Can you tell us, you know, what your gripes are with the current uh, administration here in Chicago? Yeah, my main... Uh, complaints or issues with Mayor Lori Lightfoot is that she ran uh, on a platform that she was going to shine the light on a lot of the issues in Chicago and make Chicago better for everybody. Uh, I have nothing against Mayor Lori Lightfoot as a human being. You know, I love her as a young, as a lady and all that kind of good stuff, but her policies have been detrimental here in Chicago. Of course, she's probably done some good things here or there, but the homicide rate has skyrocketed uh, under Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot. Uh, case in point, in 20, 2020, we had close to 800 homicides. 2021, 841 homicides. I'm not blaming her for the guys going out there shooting each other. I wouldn't even have nothing to say about Mayor Lloyd Lightfoot if she would stop saying she has a strategy in place. She continues to talk about having a violence prevention strategy, but the numbers are telling a different story. And a lot of times she tries to play games with the numbers. For example, uh, in 2019, um, if you compare the 2019 numbers to 2020, there's a 53% increase in uh, shootings and homicides in Chicago. If you compare 2021 to 2019, uh, before Superintendent Brown even came to Chicago, there was that same 53% reduction. So what they're doing, I mean, 53% increase in homicides, not a reduction. Let me clear that up. So what they're doing is comparing 2021 to 2020, where the numbers are like maybe a 9% increase in homicides and 2021 compared to 2020. But if you compare it to 2019, when the mayor, when uh, before Superintendent Brown arrived in Chicago, the numbers are out astronomical. They're outrageous. So basically yeah. the numbers have increased by almost 60% from 2019 right. to 2021. Yeah. And instead of her accounting for that entire period right. in which she was mayor, she just decided to take the numbers from 2020 to 2021, which is when Superintendent Brown came exactly. in. Right. So why do you think 
the increase from 2020 to 2021 was drastically less than from 2019 to 2020. Well, you know, we look at, we live in a concrete jungle in Chicago. The laws of average is that, you know, it's, it's see, the gun violence is the norm in Chicago already. So we already know, uh, all of us that are from Chicago, we know every year you're going to have anywhere from 450 to 500 homicides every year. Some years you top 600, 700, 800, close to 900 homicides. We already know this about being uh, residents of Chicago. At least I grew up around it, right? So the reality is that for the mayor, playing with the numbers is trying to be politically correct, but it's really, you know, you're really trying to mislead people. That's what's going on with that because they're looking for ways. Of, for example, she was talking about, and you can look it up. If people don't believe me, look it up. She was trying to, uh, back about two months before the end of 2021, she made a statement that she's going to deploy another strategy, have detectives to sit on the porches of the would-be killers, something like that. And so we would not reach 800 homicides. So at the end of the year, and then the superintendent talked about more detectives. How can you... Uh, hire more detectives when you already when you already have a short police force, according to the superintendent. So they're playing with the numbers of staff. They're playing with the shooting homicide numbers. So at the end of 2021, the police department released their official data saying it was 797 homicides, just so they couldn't say they had 800 homicides. So when the the uh, the, the the real number came out, 841, 841 homicides. Now they don't have nothing to say. See what's going on is that, that uh, black death has became become a hustle. A lot of people are making big money off the carnage in the black community. And I say black death because 80%, 82% of the homicides that occur in Chicago take place in the African-American community. Now, now when you say they're commercial, they're, they're making money off mm -hmm. of the carnage that happens in black communities. Right. Like, in what aspect are they making money? I'll be straightforward with it. This, this is how you make money. And everybody needs to really understand this uh, equation here. Police end up uh, working a lot of overtime. Police, I mean, millions of dollars. As a matter of fact, in 2020, the mayor spent $280 million out of the COVID relief, COVID-19 relief funds on police overtime, even though we had a 53% increase in gun violence in 2020, okay, compared to 2019. Now, was that money allowed to be spent and allocated towards the police budget? Obviously, the money was, no? uh, you know, allocated or allowed to be spent however she felt okay. that she had to spend, however she wanted to spend the money, right? Mm -hmm. Because it was, it's public information, $281 million. So a lot of people out here also with the violence prevention. I salute all the programs. Don't get me wrong. I, you know, I appreciate all the good work everybody's trying to do to kind of reduce the gun violence. But people are making millions of dollars. And, uh, you know, as a matter of fact, billions of dollars has been spent over the last probably 10 or 12 years trying to reduce gun violence here in Chicago and throughout the nation. But, you know, we're making a little progress here and there. But I believe the money should go to the victims of the gun violence now. My or maybe too much programming to like educate or like the after school programs. No, I, I truly feel the money should nation. go to the mothers that lost their sons and daughters okay. to gun violence, the people that have been paralyzed due to gun violence, and the people that have been shot who are trying to deal with the trauma and the uh, hurt and pain and the agony associated with losing a loved one or being injured by gun violence. That money should go directly to the victims. That's the reason why people were mad at Black Lives Matter for a little while recently because they raised millions and millions of dollars and uh, none of that money went to the victims of the police shooting's families. And people became very angry with that organization due to that fact, all right? So what I'm saying is that give that money to the victims out there because you're not really reducing the gun violence. Uh, and, and put it like this. And, and I cannot talk without offering a solution. See, the gun violence problem in black Chicago and black America is a cultural issue. It's not even a police issue. I'm not against the police. I'm not anti-police or anything, but the reality is a cultural issue. We must organize as black men and women, but initially first the black man must organize and reclaim uh, his, his community with those young guys out there. The fathers, the brothers, the uncles, we got to get into the minds of the shooters and organize like never before. So I, I like to, two things. One, I'd like to ask you about your opinion on Black Lives Matter. And secondly, I'd like to give you a hypothetical. But let's start with the hypothetical first. Okay. If you were elected mayor, what would be your first line of business and how would you, what would be your plan of action? How would you go about trying to solve uh, this issue of gun violence? What would be your short-term your short -term outlook to accomplish a long-term objective? Well, I would actually implement a cultural program uh, aimed at uh, organizing black men on, on the highest level ever in Chicago and having a, a like an army of tough love. Because a lot of times I mention the word army, people become a little scared, think it's too radical. But I would organize a peaceful 
uh, army of tough love, black men and women to go out there and reclaim their family members that are involved in the gun violence, number one. I think that's very important. But I'm not going to play games with people. I've been on both sides. Uh, I'm the guy that stood up against police brutality and excessive force. But when the police are right, we have to stand up with the police. Uh, I would have to do this in order to reestablish order in a community. Some people may not want to hear it, but I'll put it out there. When it comes to the looting, when it comes down to the carjacking, I would have a, a semi-military approach, semi-military, not holistic, not a whole military approach. And let me explain. I would make it crystal clear to anybody looting in my city if I'm the mayor. If I catch you looting downtown, we're going to put some rubber bullets in your behind, man. Period. When we tell you to drop the merchandise, you don't drop it. You get some rubber bullets in your behind. Some people are going to be mad for me saying that, but we have to reestablish control of the city. I'm not trying to take a life, but I'm just letting people know we got to just get it back together. Things are getting way out of control. Okay, that's number one. And number two, we have to do a, a, a we have to work harder in the area of really. See, criminal justice reform is kind of backfired on society as a whole because you have politicians making decisions from a mountaintop instead of going down there, to, instead of going talking to the victims of the gun violence, okay? Because, you know, criminal justice reform is popular for, you know, elected officials to kind of ride the wave. But, you know, you can, it's not a blanket type of decision you have to make. You have to look at a lot of, for example, it's backfiring in Chicago right now. A lot of people have been placed on electronic monitoring. People have received low bails. And you got all these liberal people coming up here with bail reform, which is all good. But you have to look at each individual situation because there's been a lot of stories of guys getting out on low bails, going out, killing somebody. Guys on electronic monitoring, going out, carjacking somebody. So we got to start thinking about the victims out here opposed to our little political careers. So when you ask me, I know what it takes to reduce the gun violence. And I will implement a cultural uh, program aimed at really, really showing some tough love to our people, our people, our young brothers out here. And making sure that we can help them become productive members of society. In Boston, they had a Boston miracle back in 1994. Reverend Eugene Rivers, they, they actually went a whole year without one homicide of a young guy under 17 because they, they took their program to the corners and worked them young guys like never before. So my thing is you don't want to call in no type of semi-military solution unless that's a last resort, okay? And what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about troops and all that. I'm talking about something similar to a United Nations peacekeeping convoy. And I would actually enlist the support of a United States general to meet me in Chicago and help us assess the severity of the problem and, and put forth a military solution to, and then we can end it once and for all. That's a, a thinking out of the box. Everything else is pretty much, I'm not gonna say everything has failed, but the numbers speak for themselves. It's time to try something different in Chicago. That makes sense. That's good. That's good. That's good. Now, uh, on to Black Lives Matter. Uh, I, I've spoken to a number of people, you know, mm -hmm. uh, locals, uh, not locals, but I've Back on back on to uh, Black Lives Matter. Okay. I've spoken with a few people. I did a little bit of research myself, and it seems as if there's a lot of mirror dressing going on with the organization. How do you obviously you know we agree with the movement, but how do you feel about the structure of the organization? And do you think there's something else going on behind the scenes where they're using this, where they're using the the plight of the black community for some other backdoor policy or maybe for some some other effect some other means to maybe raise money because like you said that money all that money they've raised yeah. where is it going well we is it know going where it should be well black lives matter i believe initially they had a you know a real good heart and a, and a passion you know for what they were doing mm -hmm. and as a matter of fact on the positive side Due to uh, Black Lives Matter raising awareness about police brutality and excessive force issues, with, especially when it comes down to black America, uh, there have been a lot of high profile cases where police have been indicted and uh, convicted, serving time now like never before. You have to understand in Chicago, the Quan McDonald was uh, shot and killed. He was shot 16 times. He was like executed. And Jason Van Dyke was the first police officer that was uh uh, you know, convicted in, uh, since over 70 some years, convicted and served time. So there's a preponderance of evidence that dictates that there's been many, many issues with the police and uh, due to Black Lives Matter coming about, they actually, they, was able, they were able to raise the bar successfully because now like Ahmaud Arbery's killers, they were not the police, but those guys, about, they, they've already been, they, they have to serve life in prison now. You look at what happened to George Floyd, if that would have happened to George Floyd about 
during the Rodney King era, they also would have got off. He would have even been, five years ago, probably. right? Even five years mm -hmm. ago. So Black Lives Matter, you know, you can cannot just go out here right now and shoot and kill no brother. If you're the police, you just cannot do that. Now the police are not always wrong. Sometimes the police right, sometimes they wrong. But now it appears the police cannot do anything right. So we have to be careful because it's a thin line right there. Uh, you had the young lady that shot De Deontay Wright. Uh, and I don't believe, I believe she made a mistake personally. Some people may become angry because I'm saying this, but I, she, she thought she had a taser, but she had a gun. She had never shot nobody before, so I believe she made a mistake. And I could be wrong though, but I, you know, I speak up in situations working on, as I feel it through my spirit, I speak on it. I believe she actually uh, made a, uh, a mistake and she chose and she put out a gun. Some people say, you know, she ended up being convicted as well, but the reality is a lot of things, see what happens with police leadership the leadership is, is, is at fault because some of the police leadership, they know they have a lot of rogue police working for them and they don't discipline the officers. So we found out consequently a lot of officers received promotions even though they had 12 or 14, 15 tickets against them as far as their behavior and their misconduct. So Black Lives Matter brought a lot of things to the surface because it's not so much about See, what they did, we hit the tip of the iceberg, but Black Lives Matter kind of went a little further into the iceberg with bringing all these issues to the forefront. But the flip side... The other side of the coin is that Black Lives Matter, they were able to exploit the movement as well. And, uh, you know, we don't know how much money they raised, but there were some stories out there. You cannot believe everything in the media. I just want to say that. But uh, apparently the founders of Black Lives Matter were purchasing two or three different houses, you know, luxury, you know, like big cars and all that kind of stuff. So it, it caught the eye of a lot of people in the movement. And, uh, you know, a lot of the family members like Trayvon Martin's, uh, you know, family members, uh, Mike Brown's family member, Mike Brown's father, like challenged them, give me $20 million since you made money off my son's death. So that's why I say black death has become a hustle, a big time hustle. So my views of Black Lives Matter, they definitely played a role uh, in uh, changing some of the policies here. But, uh, you know, we still got a lot of issues. We got a far way to go. Okay, okay, okay. Again, you know, I follow your LinkedIn page and mm -hmm. recently I know you made a very interesting post, uh, which is something that doesn't get talked about a lot in the media. Right. False, false accusations and recovering your reputation from these false allegations that are made on you. Uh, as many of you may or may not know, Andrew Cuomo, he, uh, he was forced to resign, correct? Yes. And his brother, I don't know his first Chris, name, Chris, 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 Chris Cuomo. Yeah was also fired uh, from CNN and uh, right. for aiding him in uh, these false allegations in some effort or another. So for those of you that don't know, Chris, uh, Andrew Cuomo was the governor of New York and he was apparently now falsely accused of sexual assault and it pretty much ruined his political career. And recently you just made a post saying that, or asking how do you recover from such allegations and what sort of repercussions should the the accusers face if it's turned out that their accusations were false? Well, that's a tough one there. I did make a post about it and I stand behind my post because when men in particular are accused of sexual misconduct or groping a lady or whatever the case may be, we need to really listen to the woman. I just want to put that out there. Uh, we must listen to that woman and do not take the woman's story for granted because women have been overlooked for centuries here in the world. You know, women just got their rights in America over the last 50 or 60 years. Women really struggled before that point. So I don't want to minimize anything that a woman had to experience with a man. But in this particular case, uh, you know, Governor, uh, Governor uh, Andrew uh, Como, Como, he was, uh, you know, vindicated. Actually, the charges were dropped. There was, it was unfounded. I'm not sure why they even uh, pressed forward with the uh, charges uh, because they didn't have everything they needed for us to really make it stick. So now this guy was forced to step down as the governor. His whole career has been damaged because you're still going to have people saying, well, we still believe he did it. Uh, and that's just the way it goes in the media when you're a public figure. But uh, rep management, reputation management and reputation control, it takes time to kind of come back after you've been uh, falsely accused uh, because uh, we have to see. I don't want to minimize women, like I said, because women have been, you know, stepped on quite a bit and trespassed against. But in this case, uh, the woman was not being straight up about uh, this. And he always uh, declared his innocence. So now that he's not the governor, can he go get his job back as governor? Can he resume life as usual? I don't think so because it's going to take time. I've been under the microscope myself before and uh, some things were dropped on me. But uh, when it hit me, uh, I lost everything, lost everything. I had to make a comeback. I ran for governor after uh, everything was dropped on me. And uh, I still secured 30 percent of the state vote because it was all about getting my name back. 
And all praise due to God. And I don't want to knock nobody. People do whatever they do for whatever reasons, but it's always two sides to every story. And once you listen to both sides, then you have to make a, a educated or the right decision in order to move forward on people. That, that's the reason why I made that post because, uh, you know, the brother, he was the governor, the governor of the state of uh, New York, a big state. And uh, now he lost it all. Right, for right, right now, for right, right now. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So you ran for governor. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? How you made the decision to run for governor? How did you organize your campaign? Or did you have support from the Democratic Party? Just give us a little bit of the story about that, that, that uh, well, part of your life. Experience. Yeah, I ran for governor back in 2014 and 2018. In 2014, you know, you know God allowed and helped me secure about 28.1% of the state vote back in 2014. I always wanted to run for governor or president. It has nothing to do with my ego. I just feel I'm a world leader. That's just the way I live my life. I grew up in poverty, uh, pulled myself up by my bootstraps, and I don't put nobody on no pedestal. I think we come from kings and queens, okay? And, uh, and, and that's just, I trace my roots to Nigeria, and I'm mixed. You know, my light-skinned brother has some European in me as well, but I, I was born and raised in a black community, have a strong Nigerian uh heritage and culture, ethnic ethnicity within my blood. And uh, we you know we come from you know, the transatlantic slave trade. I, I, I ran based on the fact that, you know, our people struggled over in the United States to get where we are today. And uh, I just felt, you know, I was, uh, I was just entitled to run for governor just like a billionaire or anybody else that, that felt they were privileged enough to run. So that's what it was all about. And God has given me the spirit of a thousand people, not the personality of a thousand people. I would be crazy then, but I had a spirit of a thousand people in my soul. So, you know, I just hit the ground running and ran for governor really to get my good name back. And, uh, and it worked out for me. That was my way of reputation uh, you know, management or whatever you want to call it. I've reestablished my relationships with people all throughout the great state of Illinois and throughout the nation and uh, throughout the world as well. So that was the, what the run was all about. And the second time I ran, I didn't do as well, but I I stood my ground. I ran a professional campaign, still secured quite a few votes there. But I ran against uh, big money people. I ran against a billionaire. I ran against uh, Kennedy from the Kennedy family. So they, they had some bigger, bigger names. Oh, so you ran against Pritzker? Yeah, I ran against Pritzker okay. in 2018, okay. and he spent $170 million. Uh, Chris Kennedy was in the race, Senator Daniel Biss, Bob Diver, a few other people. But with the Kennedy name and the Pritzker name, it was definitely hard to come up against $170 million. But I'm the guy that would do it. <laughs> I'd do it in a heartbeat because I, I don't live my life where I don't put nobody on no pedestal other than God, and I don't kiss nobody's ring. So, you know... I'm not saying it because of like no ego or nothing, but I just feel we all equal. We all equal. We, we human, and uh, I just don't look at the world that way. That's why I work for myself as well. If you don't mind me asking, how much how much money did you raise? Well, I I didn't raise big money. I raised around thirty thousand uh, dollars. Uh, but I have you able to secure thirty percent of the vote? Yeah. Well, see, this is the thing. Uh, it's in the record book. You can look it up. Um, I have a relationships uh, with people all over the state. I used to run ceasefire for the whole state of Illinois, so I knew that my relationships were intact. God allows me to talk a certain way. You know, uh, you know, we won 30, 30 counties downstate, white, white counties. White people voted for me. I went down and shook hands. I shook hands over 300,000 people in the state of Illinois when I ran for governor the first time. I went out there on a crusade to, uh, I was running to win, whether I had $30,000, $10, whatever. Um, I just knew we were going to do quite well. Now, if I would have had maybe about $500,000 to spend on radio, I mean TV commercials, I would have became the governor. It would have been an upset all through the, through, through the uh, land. So what, so obviously I think that you're an example of how little money can beat big money. So what did you have mm -hmm. where you, lever you were able to leverage the small amount of resources yeah. you had to, to, to win thir almost 30% of the vote where you have the person that won mm -hmm. spent hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars. Yeah. And he probably won what? Like, what did he get? 50? Yeah, maybe? something like that. Yeah, that was in the actual uh, general, but in the primary, that's when I got the 28.1%. The uh, what I had was fortitude. And wait, wait, one more yeah. thing. So, so you got about 30% of the vote. Right, in the primary. How primary. many candidates was the other 70 split between? Three, four? Five candidates. Five candidates. Wow. Right. Really? Well, that's in 2018, but in 2014, it was just myself and Governor Quinn. Pat Quinn was the governor at the time. He was okay. the incumbent, okay? Okay. So, uh, yeah, 30% of the state vote was not bad. And just just keep in mind, if I would have had some more money to uh, spend on TV commercials, I would have been your governor. I would have been the first black governor 
of the state of Illinois. And my plan was to rebuild the south and west side of Chicago and make it look like an oasis and then rebuild East St. Louis, the north side of Peoria, some parts of Decatur, Cairo. You know, I'm just looking at not just the black community. I, I would have became the governor for everybody, but because you got a lot of white people living in poverty in Illinois, too, Latino people. So I'm not just trying to talk the black thing, but my priority would have been to really make a big difference because I'm tired of looking out, you know, on the south side and I see a thousand abandoned storefronts on 79 from Damon all the way to South Shore. I'm tired of looking at the situation on the west side of Chicago. And uh, I'm one of them take the bull by the horn type of guys. So when you talk about what did I have that was different because I didn't have the big money, I just, I know a lot of people. I have strong relationships with people and I have the backbone and fortitude. We come from kings, man, you know. You know, our ancestors brought over here and forced into uh, chattel slavery and stuff. And uh, I'm running off the backbone of my people for real. I'm not no fake. You got some, you know, I ain't gonna even judge nobody. I'm just not a fake. I speak for myself. That's why I ran and uh, I would do it all over again. But, you know, I, but I found out you do have to have some money. <laughs> you got to have at least, five, you know, a guy like me, two or three million dollars. I'm your governor. I don't care how much money the next person may have. I'm your governor with three million dollars. I guarantee you. All right. All right. All right. All right. We, we may hold you to that someday. <laughs> we may hold you to that someday. Yes. Um. <clears throat> Is there any? Oh, you know what? Before we before we wrap everything up, you know, I um, another one of your initiatives that I find really interesting is you were talking about getting uh, bulletproof or like ballistic proof uh, oh, backpacks yeah. for the children. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? How you are looking to implement that? Is that something you're actually working towards yeah. making a reality, or is that just an idea that you're just throwing out there and hopefully it ca hopefully it catches traction? Was well, a twofold answer. Number one is yeah, I hope it would catch traction with the legislators. Uh, I didn't just put it out there. Whatever I put out there, I, I plan to stand by it. Uh, I have made contact with some brothers, uh, some Caucasian brothers out of Texas, uh, Austin, Texas who have bulletproof vests for kids, bulletproof baseball caps and bulletproof t-shirts, and they also have bulletproof backpacks. So yeah, we made good on what I was talking about. It's just that bulletproof, uh, you know, protective gear is illegal in Illinois, and you can, only the police can actually wear bulletproof vests and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we have to change the laws and, and get some legislative buy-in. So understand the, the science behind it though. Uh, the same way we're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, people wearing gloves and masks and protective uh, gear. Uh, since we're, since the, since the uh, elected officials or the administrative, you know, people, whatever, police department are not protecting the kids, why not allow them to be protected with some protective gear like a bulletproof baseball? We're in a violence pandemic, so we need right. PPE that, for the gun violence. That, that's basically. the point I'm making. Right. You said right. it better than I can say it. We need PPE for the gun violence epidemic of what's going on out there. So I thought it would be good for young people, 13 and, and younger, to have a bulletproof vest on, a bulletproof baby car seat. I mean, I'm going all the way out with it because it's about saving a life. It's been proven that bulletproof vests have saved the lives of over 3,000 police officers every year just about because the bullet is deflected on the vest or whatever and because you know because when I hear stories about young babies being killed you know I have pictures of a lot of babies in my cell phone young people six years old and younger being killed I don't even know the kids I keep that picture because it hit it uh, basically hits home with me and if I had a chance to do it over again in my life I, I would have became a United States Marine because the reality is that we need to really really protect our kids out here so for people that criticize uh, you know, bulletproof protective gear for kids, come up with a better solution. I, I want the people to come up with a better solution. We had a couple of years back, kids were being shot in the cars with their parents uh, in a baby car seat. Come on, give me a break. Uh, you know, bullets, you know, uh, man, I just, you know, I can't even fathom what's going on with these young kids and their parents that have to deal with the aftermath of their kid being killed. So let's try to protect these kids. They might get shot, but they will not lose their lives. And uh, like I say, the bulletproof vests a, a catch Catch the bullet. That, that's what that was all about. And I stand behind it 100% until the elected officials find a bona fide solution, a, a proof positive solution. Let's just protect the kids the same way we protect anybody with vests. You know, you cannot give a vaccine to stop a damn bullet. <laughs> so, you know, a bulletproof vest can stop that. Right. Well, uh, Mr. Chio, do you have anything else you'd like to say in uh, closing remarks or wrapping everything up? Well, you asked me about how did I, you know, win that 30% of the state vote. I was actually singing to the women on the campaign trail, too. Oh, you're actually singing? Yeah, I'm not a professional singer, but I play around. You know, I showed I had a sense of humor. Instead of being serious all the time, I had a fun side. So I would catch a lot of women at a shopping mall and just get down, you know, okay, singing okay, okay. to the ladies. And, uh, you know, I got a lot of people that supported me. And even the guys supported me because 
I'm a down home brother, you know, come out the hallways of the projects and South Side of Chicago and I, you know, I can identify with people because by growing up in poverty and then actually, uh, you know, just raising the bar, you know, I, I, you know, I, I uh, re-enrolled in school, you know, when I dropped out of high school, I got my uh, GED, then my social degree, then my uh, bachelor's degree and my master's degree. So, you know, I had, you know, I've been through some stuff like anybody else, but that, it all came from uh, the experiences that you have. You know, you know, people are made up of some of their experiences. I grew up around pimps, players, gangsters, and business people, school teachers, and every, you know, you had the best, uh, you know, you had two different worlds you can look at, and some people decided to go this way or that way, but the reality, a lot of them people became a part of my life, and I got a chance to make good of myself, so I would like to just inspire people worldwide because I'm doing just fine right now. After everything I've been through, I'm cool. I'm not money hungry. I'm not caught up in what somebody else is doing. I just I just have to keep the focus on myself and stay spiritually fit. So if I can empower anybody by listening to me on this particular uh, you know podcast and the information that I'm putting out there, this interview, just stay inspired, man. If you ever fall down in life, it's your duty to get right back up because if you stay down too long, you may not have the energy to get up. And that's words of wisdom from your main man because I've fallen down and I get right back up. <laughs> Another thing, actually, I want to talk to you about is I know you have your own radio show. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about how that opportunity came about? How did you pursue that, and what your radio show is exactly about, and how people can tune into you? Yeah, I have two radio shows now. One on WVON. 1690 AM every Sunday morning from 6 AM to 7 AM. I'm on WVON. And I tell you, when I first took the radio show over two years ago, it was like a dead time. I mean, because people think about six in the morning, but we brought it to life. I have sponsors now and everything. We got a mass listener, listenership. Uh, and then we have a lot of the phones off, ringing off the charts every Sunday morning now. So, you know, I'm the kind of guy that, that, that learned how to make something out of nothing, in other words. So that's what happened with that radio show on WVON. What do you cover on that radio show? Uh, we cover all the hottest topics in today's news, whatever's trending. You know, I deal with a lot of the gun violence, deal with the politics. We deal with COVID-19. We deal with sports or whatever the case may be. And recently I did put a post up uh, regarding the comedian Leslie Jones, the African-American comedian. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that. Well, that, that post actually reached about 550,000 people. 550,000 people. That was major. You know, people showed love to her. So my other radio show is uh, WCPT 820 AM Progressive Radio. That's more of a political radio show where we get a chance to deal with, uh, delve into the issues of everyday people out here. And that's what makes, and that show is, uh, you know, a lot of the phones off the charts. If you listen to the show, you see people calling in all across the board trying to talk to me about what's going on here. So I'm just forever grateful right now. We have sponsors for the shows and, uh, you know, the best is yet to come because I'm not as young as I used to be, but you know, I got a whole lot of hard courage and, and, and backbone, man. You know, it's just, that's not going to go anywhere. That's just who I am, man. And uh, I love being strong for myself first. And God, and, uh, you know, I had, um, in closing, I'll say that uh, I con contracted COVID-19, you know, came down with COVID-19 about two, about three months ago. And it was epic for me. I was not hospitalized. I had to go to the emergency room and, and I prayed to God. And as crazy as this may sound, I prayed to God, but I also prayed to the African warrior, Shaka Zulu. <laughs> as crazy as it sounds, because I needed some strength and some power. And I say, Shaka Zulu, get up, man, and help me out. Help me out, man. I need some help. Because <laughs> that COVID had me scared to go to sleep because I didn't think I was going to wake up the next morning. And plus, I'm a guy that took it for granted. See, I had to be made a believer. So I was made a believer. So I've been, I'm highly vaccinated now for me. Highly vaccinated. I'm just talking about for myself, but uh, God and uh, the spirit of our ancestors helped me through. So do not take COVID-19 for granted. Uh, a lot of people have died. Uh, they, they're not here anymore. A lot of people have become uh, very ill because of COVID-19. So if I can impart any wisdom on you, uh, get yourself protected some kind of way. Okay. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's T.O. Ceasefire Hardeman. Check him out. It's a good guy to know. City of Chicago. Right on. Sign off.